Now, why? Why would God make us live together like he does? What would be his thinking? Well, I think he's got this all planned out. And let me tell you what I think part of his strategy is. There is a part of our lives dealing with the way we love that God wants to have full control of. And he knows he won't have full control until we have full frustration. Now, let me tell you how God works. God always, God is very consistent all throughout scriptures. And you will recognize this as soon as I say it. You may never have thought about it before, but you will recognize it. From the very beginning of creation, God has had the same pattern in creation. He always constructs an environment, and then in that environment, he, he puts an appropriate life form. Look at, the, look at Genesis 1. Look at the creation of the world. You know, in the beginning, God created. The Hebrew word is bara, and it means to bring out of nothing... But it means it's a continuous thing. God always does this, in other words. Now, look at what he did in creation. He began to divide the light from the darkness. See, he's creating, he's creating environments. And he created the skies. And he created the seas. And he created the earth. He created all of the environments right up front. Then what did he do? He went back and he put in those environments the life forms. In the, in the light and the dark, he put the sun and the moon, see? And, and in the skies, he put the birds. And in the seas, he put great sea monsters. And all the swimming things. And in the land, he put the cattle. And all the crawling things. You see? You see what he's doing? He's creating first the atmosphere. And then he's creating the life form appropriate to the atmosphere. Do you realize that when God gave us the Ten Commandments, He was creating an environment, a structure. Ten Commandments aren't life. Laws are not life. But you know what we just sang? We just sang that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The statute of the Lord is pure, rejoicing in the heart. You see what He's doing? He's... He's giving us the law in order to affect the soul, our deepest parts. He's giving us the statutes, the, 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 the application, the practical ways to live in order to have an effect on our hearts. In other words, he's creating an environment and putting in it a life form. Well, you know what? He does the same thing with relationships. God is interested both in the environment in our relationships and the life that lives in our relationships. He's interested both in the behavior and in what happens to the heart. Please do not listen to people who say feelings don't matter. Feelings do matter. You can't live your life on feelings. That would be trying to live the life form without the environment. And the life form is dependent on the environment. But they do matter. You can't do without them. There was a young man I knew uh, and a, a, some time ago. I knew that he had started going out with a new girl. So I went up to him and I said, uh, 
So tell me about this girl. I didn't know this girl very well. I looked at him, looked him in the face. I said, so describe this girl to me. What is she like? Oh, his eyes rolled back in his head. He said, oh. He said, and she, he went into this big, long description. Well, you know what? I didn't especially want to know what, he, what, what she was like. I wasn't looking for the description. I was looking to see what was happening in his heart because he was going out with this girl. That's what I was interested in. Well, God is interested in more than a description of life. God wants to know what's happening in your heart. That's important to him. Now, there are two ways to build a relationship. One is very frustrating, but it's the only way we know until we come to Christ. It's the only way the world ever teaches us. And that is the way that is roughly akin to Newton's law of physics that says, for every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. That's right. You remember that from school, don't you? That's what makes rockets fly. That's what makes the world spin around. That's also the normal way of building a relationship. In other words, I'll do you good if you do me good. If you hurt me, I'll probably hurt you back because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You know what that's built on? That's built on a presumption that relationships ought to be 50-50. Relationships ought to be totally shared. Relationships ought to be pretty much equal. And each partner ought to do their part. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Let me read to you out of 1 Peter chapter 3. Most of us know that relationships, if they've gone on for any time at all, are less than ideal. All relationships are less than ideal. All relationships get into a place of conflict. And then we try to figure out what to do when we're in that place of conflict. Now, Peter is writing to Christian wives. They, some of them are Jewish of Jewish uh, ancestry. Some of them are from, of Gentile ancestry. But they are Christian wives. And there's a segment of those Christian wives that are having conflict with their husbands because their husbands are non-believers. And they're wondering to themselves, can I get out of this thing? I mean, the most important thing that I have in my life, my husband doesn't even believe in. And if there was ever a good excuse to leave a guy, it would be for the sake of God. So I'm wondering if I can leave. Now look at what Peter says. In the same way, he's just talked about servants and masters. He says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, in other words, if they're non-believers, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, let me tell you what he's just done. He's just put a huge handicap on a woman. First of all, this they may be one can be very easily misread. Because in America, in our mentality, winning something means somebody loses. In the Greek language, there is not this. The, the Greek language, it's better translated, they may be gained. In other words, they may gain and come into the kingdom of God. There are no losers here. 
The goal is not that the woman wins over the man. The goal is that the man can discover the gain of Christ and that the kingdom of God may be added to, the man's life may be attitude may be added to, and the woman's life also may gain. There are no losers here. There are no losers in this in this formula. So they may have gain. Now, look at this. They may have gain without a word. What is the greatest strength of most women? Speech. Most women can talk circles around most men. They think better on their feet. They remember better detail. This is not chauvinism, gang. You take a survey of verbal skills of any fourth grade class in this nation and you'll find this out. Most women can out-talk any man. And it stays like that all the way through. There are several reasons, part of them cultural, I think part of them natural and biological. But speech is the greatest strength of a woman. Now, here's the second lesson. Most of you know that one's greatest strength also tends to be what? One's greatest weakness. That's exactly right. So, there comes a time. There comes many times when we are exercising our greatest strength that we find it is what's killing us. It is what's sabotaging the success that God wants us to have. And so God is saying, you know what? Don't use your strength. That which you think is your strength. Most people, by the way, who are very articulate will come to fool themselves into thinking that talk is what accomplishes things. Talk doesn't accomplish anything. Talk can introduce some very wonderful things, can open up some wonderful areas, but there is nothing less powerful when it comes to the soul than talk. There's another kind of influence that is needed. So God's saying, so that they may be, may be gained without a word. Now look at what it says. Look at what else it says. By the behavior... Of their wives. Now I want you to see he's creating, he's beginning to create an environment. There has been an environment of conflict. He's saying, let's change the environment. Let's change it to, in verse 2, chaste and respectful behavior. No talk. We're going to change the environment here and see what happens. Now look what he is hoping. He's going to switch from an external beauty. Notice how he describes this in... in uh, in detail, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, and so on and so forth. See, that's the environment. It's just external. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That's what he's going for. A devout inner life that is so attractive to men and to women alike, and to God. He says, for in this way in former times, holy women also who hoped in God, that was their quality, used to adorn themselves. Not talking about outer garments, he's talking about behavior. Being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed 
Abraham, Sarah was not a weak woman. Sarah was a very strong woman. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. He's saying you can't do this because you're intimidated by a man. You can't do it because you're intimidated by the loss of a relationship. You do it because it's right. You do it because it's what God wants you to do. With a pure heart. Now look what he says to the men. He says... Men, I also want you to create a different environment for the relationship or for what I want to do in the relationship. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. Do you know anybody who wants to understand less than a man in a crisis? A man wants to do what? He wants to make a decision. Get on with life. Come on, I'm tired of talking about this. Let's just do something about it for crying out loud. You want to talk this thing to death. Well, he's missing the point. The point is that it's very important to maintain the relationship by having an understanding way with your wife. Not by having an understanding of your wife. You may never understand your wife. She may never understand herself. But you need to have an understanding way. In other words... Listen. Don't make a decision before you have listened. Before you have brought your wife along with you in that. He's just taken away the main strength of a man. The main strength of a man is force and decisiveness. And he's saying, wait a minute. First, you've got to listen. And you're not good at listening. And you're going to have to depend on me to help you listen. Look what it says, man. It says, in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, I'll give you a sermon on that sometime, since she's a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'll explain that in just a moment. To sum up, Let all be harmonious. This is the environment he's building. Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil, but uh, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now, what has he just ruled out? He has just ruled out this Newton's law of physics that says... For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. He's saying, whoops, wait a minute, whoops, just a second. That's how the world operates. I don't want you to operate like that. Don't want you to do it. You know why? Because you never can find satisfaction by trying to make a relationship equal. Because you can never make a relationship equal. Let me tell you something. There is a quality in all of us that when we're hurt, we want to hurt back. As a matter of fact, I was just reading the other day, a Russian psychiatrist has done a study. Uh, ten years ago, I think he started this study. And, and discovered what is a principle. He was trying to, dis- he was trying to uh, take into uh, account or discover why good people felt justified inflicting hurt on other people. 
Now, you know, and I know, that there are some people who are very good that in some circumstances will hurt people and they don't regret it. Even when those people haven't hurt them. Their heart seems to be very hard. So this Russian psychiatrist said, as he studied like the ethnic cleansing of Sarajevo and as, as, he, as he looked at the, at the Watts, or I mean, uh, the Los Angeles riots. Remember the race riots and, or the Rodney King deal? And he watched these people and he watched these people would go, could go in a store and just lift a TV and walk out. Now, everybody that did that was not a street hoodlum with no conscience. These were people who were wonderful, ordinarily wonderful citizens who were probably, many of them, church-going Christian people who, because of a certain environment, all of a sudden could feel justified in going in and looting a store and walking out and not regretting it afterwards. And he said, how can that be? Well, what he came up with is very interesting to me. He came up with a theory that is called... um, 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 uh, I got it down here. <laughs> I just went blank. I've been saying it all day. Destructive entitlement. Isn't that a good theory? In other words, he says, there are people who, because they have been hurt, pervert their sense of justice. Now, all of us have a sense of justice. God gave us all a sense of what was fair and what was not fair. Right? So we could treat each other fairly. But you know and I know that Satan perverts every good thing. Satan has nothing positive on his own. There's nothing positive about evil. Evil is always a perversion of good. It's always a a deterioration of what's good. So what he's done in this case is he's taken our sense of justice and he's turned it around and he said, you know, when you get hurt, it's okay to hurt others. It's only fair. You're just giving back what somebody has given you. And so there are people who are walking around with what he calls kind of an open account for revenge. They've been hurt, and so they don't quite feel so bad if they have to hurt somebody else. Even if this person wasn't the person that hurt them. Because they are entitled to some destruction because they've been destroyed. Could I say to you, that not only takes place in races, that not only takes place in groups, that takes place in relationships. And the curious thing about this is that when you conduct a relationship according to returning what has been given you, you begin to feel justified in the hurt you are returning. You begin to feel even though it always escalates a little bit. You begin to feel okay because you've been hurt, and then you transfer to this, this mentality, which was really comes out of a hardness of heart, that says, wait a minute, they deserve it, I don't. And all of a sudden, you're not just hurt anymore, you're innocent now. Isn't that fascinating? Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Let me show you this, how this works in, in the Scriptures. Romans chapter 2. He's just talking about how God, in Romans chapter 1, he talks about how God made himself plain to all the world, in all of creation, says you can't miss it. He says, but 
You decided to turn away from God and do perverse things and worship the creature instead of the Creator. And because of that environment, that had an effect on your hearts. Now look at verse 1 in chapter 2. It says, Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. See where the finger's going? It's going outward. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. We hate in others what we see in ourselves. We are most annoyed in others with those qualities we have in ourselves. Ever notice that? Okay? For you who judge practice the same things. Now look at verse 4. He says, you're thinking lightly of the riches of his kindness. God is pouring out kindness. And the forbearance and the patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Don't you understand this? Have your hearts become so hard that you can't understand that God is giving you something you don't deserve? And that's kindness? But you know what? Their hearts are so hard by this time, they won't accept the kindness. Look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He is saying that when you try to build a relationship on a 50-50 basis, you do for me, I'll do for you. Whatever you do for me, that's what you'll get in return. You will be so disappointed and so hurt eventually that your heart will become hard and you will feel absolutely justified in whatever you do because you will feel like you're the innocent party. And as soon as you feel like you're the innocent party, you have just stored up wrath for yourself. Because the only freedom we have is is admitting that we're not innocent. You know what? A few few weeks ago, I read a very interesting book called Gehenna. It was a takeoff on Dante's Inferno. Gehenna is uh, the Hebrew word for hell. And you will remember that Dante's Inferno is a fictional description of the various realms of hell. And the appropriate punishments for those realms of hell. Very interesting book, very symbolic, very well written. Do you know the fascinating thing to me was that the common characteristic of everyone residing in hell, no matter what realm they were in, no matter what punishment they had, no matter how badly they were suffering, every one of those people were saying the same thing. Everyone else deserves to be here. I can see it. I know they deserve it. Except for me. There was a mistake made in my my case. God must not have understood what I went through. I don't deserve to be here. There's a mistake. I'm innocent. Every person in hell was still proclaiming their innocence. Their own victimization. Could I say to you, that that is the way you build hell into a relationship? By thinking you're the innocent one? By thinking that somehow that other person didn't even deliver 10%, let alone 50%. So you've started to withhold your 50%. And hell gets built into a relationship and wrath. Now, let me give you God's cure for this. God's cure is the opposite 
of Newton's law of physics, Jesus' law of physics goes like this. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Now, wait a minute. Did I just say the same thing? See you, Joel. It's having a rough, rough night. For every action... I scared him with hell, didn't I? <laughs> Tommy's all right. Just to talk to him about Jesus. For every action... There is an equal and opposite reaction. I said the very same words, didn't I? But with Jesus, they mean the opposite. They mean just different. Listen, in physics, it means opposite means that you go against it or you come back with exactly what it's given you. In Christianity, opposite means different nature. It means radically different than what you've been given. In other words, if somebody speaks badly against you, that's how much you speak well of them. That's opposite. If somebody hurts you, that's how much you pray for them. If somebody excludes you, that's how much you would include them if they would only come. That is the law of building a relationship with Christ. And that is the law of intimate marriage. You know, to be a Christian in a relationship is absolutely impossible on your own. You've got to change your percentage. A Christian doesn't do 50% of a relationship. Christ didn't do 50% of our salvation. Christ did one hundred percent of our salvation and we are free to accept it or reject it a Christian does listen to this one hundred percent of a relationship and the other person is free to accept it or reject it and some of you are sitting there thinking what planet does this guy live on Hunter, it doesn't work like that. No, in this world, it doesn't work like that. That's why you've got to become citizens of another world. But I tell you what, if you become citizens of another world, it does work. When you say to yourself, going into a relationship, this other person owes me nothing. Because Christ paid it all. I'm here to love. I'm here to give. There is something that happens to the quality of that relationship, to the environment, and even more, there's something that happens to your heart. Now again, if you try this without Christ, it is martyrdom, and it is, what's that word? Uh, uh, masochism. If you try this just on your, don't, you know, you've heard, you've heard those commercials, don't try this at home, you know, don't try this on your own. Don't try this on your own. Can't do it on your own. There is no one who can love like this. But with Christ, you can. One of my boys came home the other night. And I said, how was your day? And he said, well, Dad, today wasn't really for me. My girlfriend wanted to do this, and so we went and did that, and and then my little brother wanted to do this, and so we went and did that. And 
buddy of mine wanted to do this, and I didn't especially want to, but, you know, we went and did that. So today really wasn't for me. I looked at him and I said, do you think that you could live all your life like that? He thought for a minute, and he said, kind of grinned, and he said, I think I could. And I looked at him and I said, you're going to be a very happy man. Because he's not expecting anything. He's got something sufficient in Christ. But what he will be happy about is the surprise that happens in his relationships because he's living like that. Not in order to get, but as a natural result of what he has sown. In Les Miserables, there is a scene that is so touching. There is a man, Jean, who tries to steal a loaf of bread in order to feed his sister's hungry children. And for that, he is sentenced to 19 years in prison. Now, if anyone had a cause to feel victimized, this man does. And indeed, he does feel victimized. And he's angry and he's bitter. And he serves 19 years in prison because he has tried to feed his sister's children. And then he gets out of prison. And he tries to get a job. And he can't get a job because he's an ex-convict. And he grows more bitter and more bitter because it's not his fault, you see. And one of the doors he knocks on while he's trying just to find some place to stay is the door of a humble bishop who invites him in. says, come in, John. You know, after he meets him, come in. Stay with me overnight. So he goes in and stays at the bishop's house. During the night, he looks over the house And he sees this silver candelabra, which is gorgeous. He is very tempted to steal it. And in fact, he can't resist the temptation. So he creeps up to the candelabra and he takes out the candles. And he puts the candelabra under his coat and he goes out the door. The morning doesn't dawn for two hours before he's caught by the police. And they drag this man back to the bishop's door and they knock on the door and there they stand with the bishop's silver candelabra. And the bishop opens the door and looks at John and looks at the police. And he says to the police, Oh, I bet you thought he stole that. I was just giving that to him. Wait, John, he says. Wait. You forgot the candles. And he goes back into the house, brings out the candles, and sticks them in. That act of an equal and opposite reaction softens that man's heart to such an extent he comes to salvation in Christ. You want to build a marriage? You want to build intimacy? You've got to do it God's way. But in order to do it God's way, God's got to do it. Now, let me just pray. We're going to, we're going to close here. Let me pray.
Let me ask you to consider two things. Here's the two things you need in order to build the quality of intimacy that will fulfill your life. The first thing you need is absolute conversion. Not becoming a better person. Not becoming nicer. Not improving the quality of your relationship. Become totally different because there is nothing in a human being that will sacrifice his life for someone else without some foreseeable benefit. Only the quality and the character of Christ will do that with any freedom and any joy. John 3.6 says, What is born of the flesh is flesh. But one of the board is the, what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Therefore, you must be born again. It's talking about a whole new life. A whole new way of doing things. 2 Corinthians 5.17 promises, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Not just better, not just more learned, new. Brand spanking new. You can do a relationship different than you've ever done it before. Because now you have the nature of Christ. I'm going to give you the opportunity to kick yourself off the throne of your life and put Christ there in just one moment. But I want to tell you one more thing that you need. The other thing that you need, and I know this because I need it, and I ask for it with great regularity, is prayer. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Treat your wives good, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, most Christians I've talked about, about that verse, say this. Well, that means that, you know, if you treat your wife right, you'll be able to get what you want. That doesn't mean that at all. You know what it means? If you have a lousy relationship with a person, you're going to do less praying. You know why you're going to do less praying? Because you know exactly what God's going to tell you to do about that relationship. And you're not going to want to talk to Him about it. You'd rather be mad. And so, 1 Peter says, build up your relationship so that you may pray, you may go to God and ask Him to help you love. Now, this is the reason you need somebody else praying for you. When you get in the middle of a fight in a relationship, you don't feel like praying, you're not going to pray. So you won't pray for yourself. So you need somebody else to pray for you. That they may pray that God would intervene in your heart and soften it so that you can do in your life what you need to do. And therefore, I urge you to pray for one another and to find someone to pray for you. If you have someone here tonight that will pray for you, I want you to ask them tonight, would you pray all week for me? And let me tell you, I can, I can give you something very simple to pray for. Philippians 1.9. Turn to Philippians 1.9. If you pray Scripture, you know it's God's will. You know you haven't said it wrong. You know your mind's not just trying... This is God's will. Look at what Paul writes in Philippians. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That your love may abound still more and more. This is what I want you to pray for each other this week. Now... I'm going, to, I'm going to pray in just a moment. But after I pray, and after I say the benediction, if you don't have anybody to pray for you, 
I want you to come up here and get somebody to pray. I want the women who don't know exactly who to ask to pray for them this week to gather right here. Now, this is not complicated. All you got to do is come up and say, Hi, I'd like for you... I'm, this is My name is Barbara. I'd like for you to pray Philippians 1.9 for me every day this week. Would you do that so that my response can be the response of Christ instead of the response I usually give? Would you do that for me? You just pair up. You never have to sin. Men, oh, I know this goes against your nature. I know you hate this. But I want you to gather over here, right over here. Say, Bob's my name. <laughs> See, men don't like this stuff. Bob's my name. You know? Yeah, I'm Ron. Pray, Philippians 1.9. It's so funny. I watched people this morning, and the guys are so different than the women. I don't want to overdo this thing, but there really is a difference. You know, the guys would go, Dave, Bob, pray for me. Good. They're gone. The, the women are over here. They're going, Hi, my name's Barbara. I've always had a trouble in this area. It's even since I was a little girl. And they start, they're still talking. And the next service is starting. They're still talking with one another. This is different. It's pretty neat. But that's just part of the difference. It's okay. doesn't have to be long. But I don't want you to leave tonight without asking someone to pray for you. Because you need that. If you're serious about the message I just gave, everybody needs somebody praying for them every day. Okay? And I want you to have that this week. And I want you to know every day this week, somebody is praying Philippians 1.9 for you. All right? All right. Stand up. Let me pray for us now. God, there may be someone in here tonight who never knew that accepting you in a personal way was required. They just, they just thought that believing in you was enough. And they believed in you and they've lived all their lives trying to do it on their own, never successfully, never been fulfilled, never been able to, to really find a relationship where they could give themselves totally. But they want to. Even more, they want to know what it's like to have you in such a powerful way in their lives. Let them right now come to you and say, God, I don't want to live alone anymore. I want you living in my heart. I accept the forgiveness that Christ died to give me. I am one of those who will admit I don't deserve anything. I am at fault. I have sinned. And so therefore, I accept the grace and the wonderful forgiveness of Christ. And I thank you that you could free me from the weight and the power of my sin. But I also want you to come in and live in my heart and help me learn to love in a way that I haven't seen before, I haven't really experienced. Give me the quiet confidence, the gentle spirit that can actually give good in return for evil and doesn't feel the need to return insult for insult. Let me walk out the Bible in my life not only for the sake of my relationships, but also so that you can use my life to influence people 
to come and love you in a way you never could before. That's what I want, Lord. Come into my life and live. And for the rest of us, Lord, that have already invited you in, help us to turn it over, to be filled with the Spirit of God, because that's the only way we can live, we can love in such a radical manner.